Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Dear Lord, this morning I pray that you expose our hearts, uh, that you uh, reveal that to us, uh, show us areas where we do not rely appropriately on what you've provided for us. Show us areas that, that maybe we see what other people have and want that. Show us areas where, um, where we're just not content with what you've given us. Um, help us to, to see you in this and help me to preach the word in a way uh, that reveals that. In your name we pray. Amen. You can all be seated. So for a period of time when I was growing up, my father was a game warden. If you don't know what that is, think like park ranger crossed with a police officer, kind of like that. My mother was a nurse and being the son of a game warden gave me some neat opportunities that not every child has. I remember watching my father teach hunter safety courses as I was a part of the class, going to a random fishing spot or or turkey hunt with him and and I'm pretty sure that I was the worst turkey hunting partner ever. I was so noisy that I'm sure I scared off everything in the woods. We also had random encounters with some wild animals that my sister and I still claim to have had as pets uh, in our youth. Most notable was a baby raccoon, which we raised uh, until it was old enough to go back into the wild and a alligator that my dad picked up from somewhere, and I'm pretty sure it only stayed in our house for a weekend, but we we claim it as a pet still. Um, Despite having interacted with so many exotic animals, um, I remember an outing where we went to a park, and there was a a biologist for the state there that was showing us uh, several of the animals that he cared for, and one of them was a snake. And my sister and I were still fearful of the snake, Uh, Maybe it was out of innate caution that we feared the reptile, or maybe it was from being educated to have a healthy fear of them. But to this day, I still very much have no love for snakes. My mom being a nurse, um, I I remember seeing snakes for a different reason. Um, On many of the nursing documents and hospital logos that my mom had stuff from over the years, there was an image of a snake around a stick uh, or a pole. In fact, many of you are probably carrying around a card with a similar logo in your pocket, depending on what insurance carrier you have. Um, This image over many centuries has represented healing to people. Um, And if you've ever wondered why that is, then hopefully my message today uh, will help you see that and see how that is reflected in God's word. And if you've never wondered that, hopefully you'll listen anyway, because uh, more importantly, we're talking about the scriptures. So as we dig into our passage today, let me catch you up to speed where we are in Israel's journey to the promised land. Uh, we've been going through the summer, through the book of Numbers, and I'll give you a brief synopsis. If you prefer more detail, you can go back and listen to sermons online through app or the podcast. 
Um, so Israel, upon leaving Egypt, uh, under the leadership of Moses, was promised a land flowing of milk and honey. So they, endured, they journeyed all throughout looking for this um, promised land. And they get there, and they decide not to go in because of lack of faith and fear that God was not going to do what he told them that he was going to do. God punishes them by leaving them in the desert for 40 years. By about the time of the passage we're reading today, they've probably been wandering for about 37 years, which just so happens to be my age. So an entire of my lifetime, a nation is wandering in the desert. Um, and they're waiting for this, this generation to die out. And we've seen that happen through, through many different things. We've seen uh, punishment, judgment from God for those who rebelled. And I'm sure some of them just died of natural causes over 37 years and the strain of being in the desert. Um, you know, Moses is pretty much always depicted as this white-haired leader. Uh, you always see the pictures of him where he's got just long, white hair, white beard. And, and I, I used to always wonder why that was, but as, as being an elder and helping lead this church, now I know. Why do you think that our elder team is growing grayer, thinner up top, thicker in the waistline, and more reliant on readers than we once were? I'll let you figure out who claims each of those features. I kid. But seriously, our team of elders considers it a joy to lead the members of this church. I'll speak on their behalf. They can't stop me. I'm up here anyway. Um, so they, they have begun making their way back to this promised land after wandering for 37 years. And they're now back where they originally got their John Brown hind parts handed to them because they couldn't follow directions when God told them to go into the promised land. So in the first couple of verses of Numbers 21, the Lord hands the Canaanites over to Israel. Things seem to have changed and are beginning to shift in Israel's favor again. They're beginning to taste victory, but old habits die hard. And we catch Israel humming a familiar tune to us. Also in our text today, you, shall be, you should be able to see several ma major theological themes packed into a fairly short passage. You'll see disobedience, sin, wrath, judgment, intercession, mercy, and salvation. That pretty much covers the majority of major theological terms and themes. Watch out for them as we unpack the text um, I'll read our passage first, and then we'll go back through each verse with some explanation. Um, so if you have a Bible, or use an app, you can look up Numbers, uh, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. If you don't own a Bible and want one, there's some way back over in there in the corner. As a church, we'd like to give that to you if you need one. Um, so Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of their journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and mount it on a pole. 
When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. So let's take a closer look at at verse 4. So they set out from Mount Hor. They're uh, going around the Sea of Egypt to bypass Edom. Um, And in chapter 20, we saw that Israel, in trying to work their way back to the start of where they were, to claim the promised land, they are met by the Edomites, and the Edomites oppose them and refuse to let them pass through. So since they can't pass through Edom, they're sent on a big detour. Now, you're in Murfreesboro, so I'm sure you know a little bit about detours. I remember just the beginning of this year, uh, there were several Sundays where I was met, met by a detour as they finished construction over Bridgie McBridge face or B.O.B. Or, or whatever they call, whatever you ended up calling the bridge over Broad Street. Um, I would get so impatient in those times if I had to travel just a few miles out of my way to get here, especially those mornings when I lacked the foresight to plan ahead and either leave earlier or plan a different route to avoid Memorial, Old Fort, Highway 96, whatever you call that. <laughs> Apparently, our city's not often uh, able to settle on one name for something. Um, much as Israel's unable to be patient and follow God the way they wandered through the wilderness. So for most of us in this room, any amount of time we've been waiting or detoured, inconvenienced in any way, pales drastically in comparison to the length of time that Israel's been waiting and wandering. Verse 5, it says, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. This is the seventh time recorded that the people spoke against God and Moses. It involves the repeated claims uh, and complaints about lack of food and water. So, but not only are they complaining about the nourishment that God has given them, They're claiming that they've been led to die out in the wilderness. I mean, he kept them 37 years. You'd think they'd start to figure it out. I recognize this, a phenomenon similar to this in my three boys, a.k.a. the Wolfpack. The way they come at you requesting that they would be given a snack, you'd think they've been wandering the desert for 40 years. But in actuality, it's 9.30 a.m., and they just finished 12 buttermilk pancakes each at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Upon my refusal to oblige them of their request, I immediately take on the barrage of, but I'm starving! <laughs> you never give us a snack! <laughs> really? The boxes of granola bars and goldfish in the pantry over there convincingly defeat your arguments. I say it to them just like that. No, not really. Israel's spirits were not faithful to God. They refused to obey God's law, and they forgot about the miracles and provisions that God had already given them. Israel's impatience led them to blaspheme God to reject Moses and to despise the bread from heaven, which God had graciously provided for them. Just how Moses attacked the rock, uh, which was more than it appeared to be on the surface, like Elisha shared with us last week, this disdain for the food is more serious than it seems on the surface. Rejecting the gracious provision of God was equal 
to rejecting the grace of God. So what happens? Verse 6, Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Some of your translations of Scripture probably say fiery serpents. Now, if that mental picture isn't scary, I don't know what is. Thinking about God sending flaming serpents after the people of Israel, I'm sure that'll make you second guess a lot of things. But really the point here is that God's wrath and judgment is sent to Israel in the form of poisonous snakes. It's assumed that these would have been something like carpet vipers, which were probably native to the area that they were in. And I like to think of it like an Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Last Ark when they're descending into the well of souls to retrieve the ark and there's a den of snakes waiting for them. Those kind of snakes. It's, uh, It's historical and geographically appropriate. These snakes more than likely were there all along, but God's protection was with the Israelites. God is ruler over the earth. His judgment for their rejection and and provision in that, he, he removed the protection and let the snakes go on attack. On the surface, it seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. They were complaining about the food and God sick snakes on them. That would be like my kids requesting their snacks and me calling them to be drawn and quartered, but... But this points, us to, this points us to the actual severity of what's going on in the hearts of the people of Israel. They are genuinely rejecting God here. So he has to deal with them, and this is what he's chosen to do. The poison that the snakes inject into them affects them physically the way that their sin in rejecting God is affecting their hearts. The people then, this is verse 7, The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Here's where it starts to look different for Israel. They come to Moses and they say, We have sinned. They acknowledge that it's their own, it's entirely their own fault. They recognized that their hearts were against God and against Moses' leadership. And now they're losing their lives over it. They don't know what to do, so they come to Moses and they confess. They need him to stand before God and intercede like he's done so many times before. This time it seems like they want it. And it's because they're feeling the consequences of their sin. So what happens next? In verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and mount it on a pole. When anyone is bitten, when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. God tells Moses to make an image of a snake and put it on a plane. No, not not snakes on a plane. He tells them to put it on a pole. Uh, the snake was likely made of bronze or copper and place central to their encampments so that those who had been bitten could be brought near to where they could see it. Those who looked at the snake were healed. The passage is one of the many types or shadows of Jesus that we see throughout Scripture. How do we know this is a type of Christ? Well, Jesus tells us himself. Early in Jesus' ministry, uh, one of the Jewish leaders, Nicodemus, comes to him, and they have a lengthy and likely confusing conversation where Jesus is explaining salvation to Nicodemus, and he seems to be missing the point. 
Eventually, John 3, verse 14, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's always this temptation in reading scripture to make it about us. I know this because at times I've been guilty of it. But Jesus here tells us that it's about him. The snake on the pole, that's about him. I remember when I was reading through the Old Testament and was finding myself very frustrated with Israel's rebellion. Um, I even kind of became angry toward them. Like, how how could y'all do that? Because God led them and provided for them all through Scripture. And constantly they bucked and rebelled against God and the direction that he was leading them. Um, I wanted to always identify myself as the Moses in the story, which is completely inaccurate. Uh, You see, if anything, you and I, we're Israel. How are we Israel? How are we like Israel? How do we fit in this story? And more more importantly, how does Jesus fit into this? I have four points that will address these questions and and help us to apply the text to our lives. Uh, The first is, like Israel sinned in the wilderness by rejecting God, we have rejected God. How have we rejected God? We have the same problem Israel did. We're not satisfied with what God has provided for us. Inside each of us, there's this hunger for more than what God has given us. We can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them one tree to keep from eating. He said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. But Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. They ate of the tree and through Adam, sin came into the world. All it took was a seed of doubt suggested by the serpent in that garden saying, did God really say? That was enough to crack the door open for Adam and Eve. And we do the exact same thing. We think we know better than God and pursue things on our own. We say to ourselves, did God really say? And cracking that door open, we develop these longing for things other than God. Be it sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or relationships with people, jobs, children, achievements, houses, cars, recognition, even ministry. We pastors aren't exempt. We tell ourselves that if I could have blank and then we proceed to fill in the blank with whatever we have these longings for, anything other than what God has provided for us, once we get whatever we have filled in our blank, we're left unsatisfied and we start the cycle over and over again, continuing in our dissatisfaction. In the words of the famous theologian Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. We constantly, we are constantly trying on our own and it never leads us anywhere because we're looking for satisfaction everywhere else other than where God intended. You see, the poisonous sin that entered the hearts of Adam and Eve has carried on for generations through Israel, and it still affects us today. Like the serpent, and that brings me to my second point. Like the serpents were killing the Israelites in the desert, our sin is killing us. 
The first part of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The lust that we have in our hearts that causes us to pursue people, things, and images that disconnect us from loved ones and from God. Pride causes us to be fault-finding, insensitive, defensive, desperate for attention, neglectful to others. Greed causes us to be unsatisfied to the point of doing things that we despise to obtain things that others tell us that we need. Laziness causes us to justify our desire to avoid spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer, as well as kill our physical bodies from inactivity, obesity, and the ailments that result. Hatred causes us to be angry for no good reason and insulting to others rather than having a spirit of forgiveness. These are just a few of the sins that I'm sure that everyone in this room struggles with. So how do we deal with our sin? How should we deal with our sin? Point number three, like Israel needed Moses to intercede for them, we need an intercessor. For Israel, Moses was their intercessor. Who will be our intercessors? For one, we need friends. I'm talking about real friends, not just people who follow you on social media. You need people who are in your life with some sort of regularity. Real friends can help you process things, can sympathize, they can listen to you. Friends that will point you toward Jesus, toward God and his word. They can even argue with you. That's right, you need some friends who can challenge you when you start to chase your own desires. That means that you need friends who are older than you, who are more mature than you. You need friends who have done things that you may not have yet. Many of you may be thinking, now, Pastor, where, where am I going to find all, all these friends? <laughs> I can't. I can't find anybody that meets that criteria. Well, that's what we gather here as the church for. Here at City Church, to connect with people on a level where you can actually get to know each other well enough, you're going to need to be in a community group. Those, I'm sure, will be kicking off soon as we near school starting back. And uh, you can email dwalker at Borough City Church, and he will be glad to help you find one. But really, you can ask any of our elders and leaders here at the church, and they will connect you to people who will be in your lives. Now, as you try to make friends, I'm going to give you a little piece of advice. This is free advice. I don't charge for this one. And I think it came either from my mom or from my grandmother. I can't remember. I'm not, not sure at this point. But either way, it stuck with me. In order to have a friend, you have to be a friend. So often, when we look around our, at, at ourselves and we're stuck in the muck and the mire of our lives and we don't find anyone there with us to help us get out, it's because we've been unwilling to climb in the muck and the mire for someone else. Our mission statement here at the church is multiply gospel change for broken people on purpose. Having relationships with broken people is messy. Having relationships as a broken person is messy. We have to be willing to get in the mess together. 
Now, I'm going to take a few seconds and talk to the men, mainly because I am one and I know what it's like. You need to do things with other men. Go out and do something. I've learned over the years that most men are not going to bear their souls to each other over lattes. And I'm not, I'm not, say, I'm not saying that anything is wrong with bearing your soul over, to each other over lattes. Just most of you aren't going to do it. Our ladies, they're, they're more uh, skilled at doing that with one another. But for men, when you're working on something together or striving for a mutual goal, There are bonds that are made that allow us to tell each other about the mess in our lives. We see in our passage that Israel takes their mess to Moses. The people of Israel went to Moses and repented for sinning against him and for sinning against God. This is Israel mending the relationship with Moses. They did him wrong so many times in the wilderness. Over and over again, they were stubborn sheep who did not want to listen to the shepherd. And over and over again, Moses stood before them and stood before God pleading on their behalf. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You need people to intercede for you and you need to intercede for other people. Something unique happens in this passage with Israel. Israel comes to Moses acknowledging their sin and seeking repentance. And he, he, they come to him because he's a leader. And they think that he can help them fix their problem. Another intercessor that you have is our team of elders and staff at this church. As elders, we often spend time interceding on behalf of you who are in need and who have been riddled by sin and its effects. It's one of the saddest, but also best parts of being an elder. It's sad to me because of the depths of brokenness and sin that that you all go through. It really pains me to see what sin does to marriages, families, and relationships with others. What makes it the best is when we get to see God move and real repentance take place in the hearts of sinners. We see those glimpses of repentance and the movement of the Holy Spirit in your lives, and that makes seeing and feeling the pain worth it. So let our church, our members, leaders, and pastors intercede for you, and you intercede for us. You need intercessors, but you need someone else beside friends and leaders at the church. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Number four is like the bronze serpent saved the Israelites from dying when they looked at it. Jesus promises to save us from eternal death if we look to him. Our sin gives God every reason for us to bear his judgment and die. But that was never his intention. There's a second part to the Romans 6.23 verse that I quoted earlier. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but... But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the bronze serpent lifted on a pole, Jesus was lifted on a cross where he died for our sins. Like the serpent saved the lives of the wounded Israelites when they looked, Jesus saves our lives when we look to him. 
We have to deny our sinful instinct to try to do things our own way. And we have to look to Jesus. Jesus is the source of everlasting healing. The Israelites were healed by the bronze serpent, and they eventually went on to die physically. Jesus died on the cross so that we could go on living eternally, spiritually. It was not the snake that was on the pole that that healed God's people. It was their belief in God and what he had told them to do. Belief that was demonstrated when they were obedient to follow God's instructions. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God, of God's throne. He's at that right hand to be an intercessor for us as well. We need to look to Jesus Now, we don't put him up in the center of the room or up here on the stage as some kind of picture to look at. He's already hung on the cross and died for our sins. We look to Jesus by reading the Bible because it's all about him. We demonstrate our belief by prayerfully relying on God, fleeing temptation, and in the words of Simon Peter in 2 Peter 1, supplementing our faith with goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If we lived out all of those things, we'd all be great followers of Jesus. But it's difficult because we're all sinners. That's why I'm thankful for Jesus, because he has taken the burden of all our sins so that we can cast them and the heavy weight that they bear aside. Look to him and rely on the Holy Spirit for strength connect with other believers, bear each, other burden, bear each other's burdens, and allow God to use this community of believers in your life. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died so that our sins could be forgiven and give us eternal life. Help us to follow you. Help us to pursue real relationships with each other. Relationships where sins are confessed and forgiven and we spur each other to look at you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord. Amen.